Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 15. And if you were here last week, you know we went back to a verse that um, we had covered in the previous week in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, the text there we were studying and we, we went back to verse 16 where Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. And there have been a, a, a few verses along the way in our study of the Gospel of John that I felt like we kind of just skimmed over uh, in our exposition, but uh, they were uh, of enough importance that they, they were worthy to go back to and, and just kind of camp out on for, for a little while just to make sure we understood the, the richness and, and the depth of what, what is contained in some of these truths. If you remember, we went back uh, over John 3.16, took one whole sermon to talk about John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is probably the most well-known verse in the entire Bible. Hey, let's go and talk about that, just that one verse. Um, I felt like John 15, 16 was another one of those verses when Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. One of the clearest references to the doctrine of election found anywhere in the whole Bible. In fact, I would say this, that, that, that of all the books of the Bible, I think the Gospel of John provides one of the clearest presentations of the sovereignty of God in salvation um, than maybe any other book of the Bible. If you remember, about six years ago, we had a special guest speaker named Dr. Steve Lawson, and uh, he was uh, uh, taught our spiritual life conference uh, which was uh, on the theme of the doctrines of grace or the sovereign grace of God is what we called it. And he uh, basically covered uh, the doctrines of grace, the tulip, the total depravity, the uh, unconditional election, the limited atonement, the irresistible grace, the perseverance of the saints. And he drew each one of those messages uh, from the Gospel of John. And I remember just in a private conversation afterwards, he told me that he, he really had a desire at some point to put together a series of messages and sermons um, preaching the doctrines of grace from the Gospel of John. And in some ways, he was kind of practicing that, if you will, when he was here, because I just saw on the Ligonier website this past week that he actually has now come together with this series called The Doctrines of Grace in John. And he's one of the teaching fellows there with Ligonier, and, and uh, he's, that's one of the, the series, kind of like the one we watched this summer, right, on the character of God, the attributes of God. He's doing this one called The Doctrines of Grace from the Gospel of John. And so I thought, how neat is that, that um, it, it, hopefully in some way we were a part of that development of that thought pattern and that material um, when he was here six years ago. But I came across an old hymn, some of you may have heard of this, um, that I think really captures what Jesus was saying in John 15, 16. It goes like this. I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not that I, it was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. I find, I walk, I love, but oh, oh the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou wast long beforehand with my soul, always thou lovest me. In other words, you've always loved me before the beginning of time. Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. 
a very biblically based hymn that was sung years ago. And so I'm here again talking with you about the doctrine of election because I know that one sermon on the doctrine of election, um, let alone a whole series of sermons, right, would never answer all your questions about election. In fact, if you ever find somebody who can answer all your questions on the doctrine of election, would you please introduce him to me because I have some questions of my own that I need to ask this guy, whoever he is. Um, But thankfully, our salvation does not depend on whether or not we completely understand all the Bible says about the doctrine of election. Amen? I mean, there's, it's, there's much mystery here in the Scriptures. But that doesn't mean we should just forget about it as if it wasn't important. I'm saved and, all that, and that's all that matters. Uh, don't talk to me about things that confuse me, right? They give me a headache. La, 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 la. I don't want to hear it, right? I, I'm saved and that's all I need to know. Um, well, again, I've taught enough about enough on election to know that, that that people respond in all sorts of different ways. Whenever you talk about it, whenever the subject is brought up, and, and again, I just thought there would be um, some benefit to uh, just just hopefully reining in some of the stuff that typically happens. Right where we have a tendency to take this doctrine to its logical conclusion, and and frankly, beloved, it takes us places that we don't want to be. And takes us places where we don't want to go. And takes us places where God never intended us to go with it. And so we have to be careful that we kind of keep this all in check, in biblical check. And and so I felt like um, I just wanted to provide some boundaries, if you will, to kind of maybe build a fence, right, around the doctrine of election so we can't go too far with it and, and get off the beaten path and get off the rails where, again... I don't want to be, you don't want to be, and our church doesn't want to be. And so when it comes to the doctrine of election, I think Christians and and churches typically fall into three basic categories. See if you can find yourself in one of these three categories this morning. Number one, there are those who won't understand it and they reject it. They just won't understand it and they they reject it. They're, They're frustrated by, hey, I don't want to hear it. I don't agree with it. I can't accept it. So I'm not going to understand it. I'm, I, I just reject it. They're frustrated by it. Secondly, there's those who can't understand it, and so they avoid it. They're confused by it, and so they're like, oh, don't talk to me about that. I don't want to hear it. Okay, it just confuses me, um, so, so please don't talk about it. Um, so they can't understand it, so they just avoid it. And then thirdly, there's those who don't understand it, but accept it. And they're blessed by it. Hopefully that's you. I know that's me. I don't understand it. But I accept it because it's there in the scriptures. And I guess what? I am blessed by it. And I want you to be blessed by it as well. Listen, God never intended the doctrine of election to confuse us or to frustrate us. He intended for, for us to be blessed by it. And those who reject it, those who try to avoid it or just forget about it, they miss out on the rich blessings that God has in store for those who, by faith, accept it. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1. And and this is really kind of the basis of today's message, Ephesians chapter 1. 
Uh, It's a passage I'm sure that most of you are familiar with. Here Paul was writing to the believers in the church in Ephesus, and as he begins his letter, he just goes off on the sovereignty of God and salvation. And I just love this um, portion of God's word, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you think that Paul feels blessed? I think so, because three times he uses the word blessed or blessing here. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so he's, he's got blessing on the mind here. And then notice he immediately goes to describing and explaining God's plan of salvation and the role that each member of the Trinity plays in our salvation. Notice he says, verse 4, just as he, the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And now he comes to Christ. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, now he's going to move to the Holy Spirit, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory." Now, if that sounds like a mouthful, it's because it is a mouthful. In fact, literally, in the Greek text, that is one long sentence. Just one sentence. Paul Paul couldn't bring himself to punctuate that. It was just this this string of of incredible blessings that, that come from understanding the doctrine of God's sovereign grace in salvation. And so the question I want to ask us this morning is, what does knowing the doctrine of election do practically in the life of a believer? How should embracing the sovereignty of God and salvation, i.e. our election, our predestination, how should that affect our lives? Philip Ryken and James Montgomery Boyce wrote an excellent book on the doctrines of grace. It's probably the, the kindest, gentlest treatment of the matter I've ever read. I love it. Um, Listen to what they say in in this book about Calvinism, which again, if you weren't here last week, is is, is simply another term for um, the doctrines of grace or another term for biblical theology of salvation. And the reason why it was dubbed Calvinism is because back in the, the, during the Reformation, when when the the, the church leaders were looking for uh, something to 
used to rebut the Arminian heresy that was being presented to them uh, in Holland, and they were saying, hey, would you ch- change all the, the, the catechisms and the, and the statements and confessions to reflect what Arminian taught? Uh, and they said, no, this is heresy. And so they wanted to respond, and so they went to the writings of John Calvin, who had done the, the greatest work on the doctrine of salvation in his day, and so they just took some of his writings as he was uh, explaining and applying the scriptures and, and rebutted each one of the five points of Arminius's students, right? And, and that became known as the five points of Calvinism. And so sometimes we just talk about Calvinism uh, as biblical, a biblical theology of salvation. So this is what they said. Calvinism is not a set of doctrines, but a whole way of life. God has revealed the doctrines of grace, not simply for our instruction, but ultimately for the transformation of our lives. And so I want to talk with you this morning about what are the practical effects of embracing the doctrine of election. What are some of the practical effects or blessings, you could say, or benefits of embracing the doctrine of election? Now, by way of introduction here, I, I guess I should ask you to think about what are what, what is some of the, the, the common negative feedback that maybe you've heard um, about the doctrine of election, or maybe some of the concerns that you have seen, you've experienced um, in your Christian life, and maybe in past experiences at past churches. I, I say that because um, I know of specific people in our body who their first Sunday here, or their first few Sundays here, they pulled me aside and they said, hey, hey we heard that you're, that you're a Calvinist. We heard that you teach election, that you believe in election. And basically, somebody had told them, hey, be careful of that church because they're Calvinistic and they believe in the doctrine of election. And so, so basically, we, we've had people get warned <laughs> about coming to this church because of what we believe and what we, we teach. And so, guess what? There, there is some negative, I admit, there's some negative feedback out there. Um, there's people who have had some bad experiences with the doctrine of election. Uh, it's, it's proven to be divisive. Um, it, it's had, it has had negative effects in some believers' lives, in some churches' experiences. It's had negative effects. I think, I think some of the, the legitimate uh, concerns that, that people have raised over the years about, about election is that, that it maybe produces a prideful attitude in people. Uh, it causes people to doubt their salvation. I told you about one individual who, who left our church, and when I asked them why they left, they said, well, I'm, I just concluded that I'm not one of God's elect. And I'm like, well, how would you know that? <laughs> um, the Bible says you need to repent and believe. That's what you need to worry about. Don't worry about whether or not you're elect, right? You just do what the Bible says. You're more focused on God's sovereignty than you are on man's responsibility, right? But it, it does some, at some point, if misinterpreted and misapplied, it could cause people to doubt their salvation. It, I think it also encourages people potentially to live a sinful life. I'll describe, explain that in, in a moment. Uh, it removes the incentive to evangelize the lost, we, we talked about that last week, the hyper-Calvinist view, right? Well, hey, if God's already, already determined who's going to be saved and who's not, then what does it matter if I share the gospel? It's going to happen. Um, and then maybe lastly, I think a legitimate concern would be that whenever you 
talk about the doctrine of election, it just kind of creates a classroom of, of intellectual theologians who, who only care about being right doctrinally rather than a, a church of worshipful Christians who, who care about being in love with Jesus. And if you don't believe me that there's people out there that, that have a hard time with the doctrine of election, um, just listen to one critic here. This is what he said, quote, nothing will deaden a church any more than an adherence to Calvinism. Nothing will foster pride and indifference as will an affection for Calvinism. Nothing will destroy holiness and spirituality as an attachment to Calvinism. The doctrines of Calvinism will deaden and kill anything, prayer, faith, zeal, and holiness. That's one man's opinion. But as I hope you will see today, that a clear understanding of the doctrine of election should have the exact opposite effect on people. Again, Riken and Boyce say this, the doctrines of grace help to preserve all that is right and good in the Christian life. Humility, holiness, and thankfulness with a passion for prayer and evangelism. He said this, the true Calvinist ought to be the most outstanding Christian. The true Calvinist should be the most outstanding Christian. So let's talk about the, the proper way that we should be affected or impacted by our understanding of and embracing the doctrine of election. Number one, number one, it crushes our pride. It crushes our pride. The doctrine of election crushes our pride. Instead of producing a prideful attitude, No, it's the exact opposite. It crushes our pride. Listen, all of us, let's admit it, okay? All of us have a tendency to try to take credit for everything. That's our nature. But our salvation is one thing for which we can't take any credit. Why? Because we didn't do anything to deserve it, and we didn't do anything to earn it. Even our repentance and our faith were granted to us by God. Therefore, God gets all the glory, and we get what? None of the glory. That's Paul's point here. Three times he mentions the glory of God in Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 12, that we would be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. So This is all about God's glory, right? And not ours. Um. The other thing, not, not, not only do we have a tendency to try to take credit for everything, but we also have a tendency to try to figure out everything. We try to know everything, right? But, but the doctrine of election is, is one thing that we can't figure out. Our puny, finite minds cannot fully comprehend it. In fact, to the human mind, the doctrine of election seems illogical, even ridiculous, That's why, frankly, some of you engineers have the hardest time with the doctrine of election. Because your mind, the way God wired your mind, was to be logical, and that's your, you make a living out of logical conclusions, right? And we're thankful for that, because we have bridges that don't collapse, and we have buildings that don't collapse, right? Because you do a good job at being logical and saying, if this is this, then this is going to be this, right? So let's think about this for a second, at how illogical believing the doctrine of election is. This is what the Bible teaches. God predetermines 
who will be saved, but if we don't get saved, he punishes us. Don't think about that too long or that'll make you mad, okay? You're like, that doesn't sound fair, right? That's just not right. How can that be right? I can't believe in a God who would be that way, right? How about this? God holds us responsible to choose Christ, but our will is naturally inclined to reject Christ, and so we're unable to come to Christ unless God makes us willing. How about this? The Bible commands us to repent and believe, but repentance and faith are gifts granted to us by God. Now, if you're listening carefully, right, that sounds like a bunch of foolish double talk that flies in the face of human reason. And if you're thinking that, I would agree with you and say you're absolutely right. It makes no sense. And see, the doctrine of election forces us to admit our ignorance and our our finiteness that God is so much greater and so much wiser and smarter than we are. Isaiah 55, right? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so when confronted with the, the hard questions, we have no other choice but to say, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I don't know how that fits together. I don't know why that. You just have to say, I don't know. I particularly enjoy reading Spurgeon on this subject of the doctrine of election because no one enjoyed preaching on the doctrines of grace and election more than Spurgeon, but no one was more balanced when it came to this. No one was more evangelistic. No one was more passionate about calling sinners to repentance than, than this man who firmly believed in the doctrine of election. But listen to what he says. He says, I know nothing that is more humbling than this doctrine of election. I have sometimes fallen prostrate before it when endeavoring to understand it, but when I came near it and the one thought possessed me, God hath from the beginning chosen you unto salvation. I was staggered with the mighty thought and from the dizzy elevation down came my soul prostrate and broken saying, Lord, I am nothing. I am less than nothing. Why? Why me? Why me? And all of the questions, I think, that that swirl around in our heads about the doctrine of election should be swallowed up by this one overarching question, why would God choose me? Why would God save me? And the reason that thought should be so amazing and should should fill our mind to the extent that we don't have time to think about any other questions that might come up, right, is because we know that we are the worst sinner that we know. Do you believe that? Are you, are you the worst sinner that you know? I'm the worst sinner I know. I'm a worse sinner than any of you in this room. I know that because I know the deceptiveness, the wickedness of my own heart, that my heart is deceitful and wicked so much that I don't even understand it. By the way, that verse, Jeremiah 79, doesn't just apply to my heart, it applies to your heart too. I love what Boyce and Riken say. They give an example from church history. They say the English reformer John Bradford spied a drunk lying in the gutter and said, there but for the grace of God lies John Bradford. Bradford knew, it says, his own heart well enough, knew his own heart well enough to realize that he was as depraved as anyone and that the only thing that prevented him from a life of, of sin and despair was sovereign grace. And so a Calvinist is deeply aware of their own sinfulness. 
And when we see God for who he really is, we have no other choice but to see ourselves for who we really are, and we realize how desperately we need his grace. Again, Boyce and Riken said this, a penitent spirit or a broken heart is one of the true hallmarks of Calvinism. The true Calvinist is is the man or woman who wakes up in the morning saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Remember the the publican, the tax collector, Luke 18, 13. I'll just confess to you that, that, that the older I get, I find that being my first conscious thought in the morning. When the alarm goes off and I get up out of bed and I hit that alarm and sometimes I fall back and I lay awake on my pillow and, and the, the first thought that, that, that's formed in my mind is God be merciful to me a sinner. They say this daily confession brings with it a healthy mistrust of one's own capacity for godliness and a corresponding dependence on God for his grace. And so first of all, we need to understand that the doctrine of election crushes our pride. It crushes our pride. Listen, embracing Calvinism causes a person to be extremely humble. Did you hear that? And embracing the doctrine of election should cause you to be extremely humble, which means that an arrogant Calvinist is an oxymoron, or maybe just a moron. Sorry, I have to say that, but listen, there are some people out there who believe these doctrines that I'm teaching you and I'm talking about, and they do a disservice to these things by their arrogant attitude. They're just jerks about it. They're arrogant. They're prideful, and they walk around as if this is some Gnostic, you know, higher knowledge, like, oh, we've come to believe in the doctrine of election, and, you know, someday when you get to be as spiritual as I am, maybe you'll see it too, and it's just this proud, cocky, and frankly, it turns people off. And they're like, you know, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I'm not sure I can understand what you're telling me, but whatever it is, I don't want anything to do with it because you're a jerk. So, hey, let's, if we do believe these things, right, let's be, what, what, what we need today is a kinder, gentler Calvinism, okay? We need to be more gracious and humble in the way we communicate these things. And so it crushes our pride. Number two, the doctrine of election makes us secure. It makes us secure. Instead of making us doubt our salvation, and oh, what if I'm not one of the elect? No, it makes us secure. Listen, if we didn't do anything to earn our salvation, then guess what? We can't do anything to lose our salvation. How's that for good news? On the other hand, if our salvation depends on us doing or not doing something, then guess what? Our salvation is is as unstable as we are. But praise be to God that our salvation does not depend on our work, but on God's work. And in order for a person to, to lose their salvation, that would mean that all the work that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit did on our behalf would have to be undone. I mean, everything that Paul is just gushing about in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, right, would just have to be, you could just tear that out of the Scriptures. That was all for nothing. Listen, God initiated the process of salvation in you, and He always finishes what He starts. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. 1 Thessalonians chapter 
Chapter 5, verse 24, uh, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the beginning of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before the Father. This is what we call the doctrine of eternal security. And we've, we've, we've seen this in the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, you remember, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. In other words, God gave the church, the body of Christ, to Christ as his bride, and he will not lose any one of us. And of course, John 10, you're familiar with this, John 10, 20, 28, I give eternal life to my sheep, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We, we talked about that, that we are were, we were doubly safe, right? Not only in the hands of Christ, in the grip of Christ, we're in the grip of God himself, God the Father. When I think about how we're in the grip of God when it comes to our salvation, I think about when our kids were little and I would coax them uh, to come out and swim with me in the deep end of the swimming pool or jump off the edge into the swimming pool. And, and so they would get up the guts and they'd come out there and all of a sudden they would just like, they'd latch onto your neck and you're just like, oh, and they're holding on is so tight, right? Because they're, and they're thinking the key to them not drowning is, is how tightly they're holding on to you. And they're sitting there thinking, this is all about me. i got to hold on super tight because if I let go, I'm going to drown. When what they don't realize is the reason why they're not drowning is because I got them, right? I'm holding them. And they could let go. They could completely let go, arms and legs, flailing around, and I still got them. They're not going anywhere. And that's the way it is with our salvation, right? It's not how tightly you hold on to Jesus, right? It's how tightly Jesus is holding on to you. And you need to understand this, and I think you can understand this, and this is logical, and I think this is an okay uh, logical conclusion to make when it comes to the doctrine of election, is this, that the doctrine of eternal security is inseparably linked with the doctrine of election. You can't have one without the other. I mean, our, our, our security in Christ, the security of our salvation is a natural byproduct of election. And if you don't accept the doctrine of election, then listen, you resign yourself to live the rest of your life wondering whether or not you're saved and worrying about the fact that you might do something that will cause you to lose your salvation. And that's why typically churches that are more Arminian in their doctrine will also believe and teach that you could lose your salvation. Because guess what? They, they go hand in hand. If you did something as part of your salvation, then you could also do something to lose your salvation. But if God did everything in your salvation, you can't do anything to lose it. They stand or fall together. Not only does the doctrine of grace, or the doctrines of election, I should say, make us secure regarding our salvation, I think it just makes us secure in general amidst the trials and the sufferings of life. Why? Because we have the confidence that God causes, what? All things to work together for good 
to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That verse, right, it comes right at the beginning of that wonderful treatment of salvation that, that, that those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ and those whom he foreknew, right, he called, called and then he glorified or he sanctified, he glorified, right, justified, that whole thing. It's all in that context. And so God will ultimately glorify himself through our pain, through our trouble, through our trials. And so we don't have to react to trouble and difficulty like some wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Listen, God's sovereignty serves as an anchor for our soul. Not just for our salvation, but just in our general, um, how about this, in our sanctification. (laughs) So the, the, the God's sovereignty in our salvation, our justification carries over into our sanctification. And so we live with confidence, we live with hope, we live with peace, knowing that God is in control of everything. From our salvation to everything else that happens between our salvation and our glorification. So it makes us secure. So it crushes our pride, it makes us secure. Thirdly, the doctrine of election leads us to holiness. It leads us to holiness. Instead of encouraging us to sin, That's the point. Instead of encouraging us to sin, some might think, hey, this is a sweet deal. I like this this stuff. I mean, this is even better than, 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 you know, you can lose your salvation because, you know, you just live in fear of that and you're always trying to, you know, make sure you don't do anything that bad because God's up there and he's going to hit you over the head and, right, so if I lose my salvation, you know, so it kind of keeps you in line. Well, you're thinking, hey, I like this better, right? This is a sweet deal. I can do anything I want and I still go to heaven. I got to, I got to get out of, I got my get out of hell free card. It's my pass. And if you believe that, then you obviously miss the whole point of election. Because Paul says it very clearly here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the earth, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and Beloved, 1 Peter 1 2 talks about uh, being uh, chosen of God, those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Romans 8 28, right? For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Listen, when we understand that God chose us not just to keep us out of hell, But to make us holy as he is holy and ultimately to conform us to the image of Christ, right? Then election becomes this powerful incentive to live a holy life. No one who's been genuinely saved will purposely take advantage of God's grace. That was Paul's argument in in Romans 6.1. Shall we continue to sin so that grace may what? Abound. And he said, may never be. Absolutely not. On the contrary, out of love and gratitude, we will strive to obey and honor God with our lives. We'll we'll feel naturally constrained by his grace to surrender and commit our entire life to serve him. You remember Titus chapter 2? Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men so that we can live however we want to live. 
Thank you for laughing. I'm glad you know that's not what the Bible says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's how the grace of God, God's sovereign grace in your salvation, should impact you. That you just want to honor Him. You want to glorify Him. How could you sin against such great grace? How could you sin against such great love? You, you get the point of being saved was not just so you don't have to go to hell. You know, it's sad to me. I think that that's, 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 as, that's, that's as far as some Christians go in their understanding of, of what it means to be a Christian. That, hey, great, I, I accepted Jesus and now I don't have to go to hell. And that's, that's their experience as a Christian. That's all they know about being a Christian is I get to go to heaven when I die. Well, you, you are missing like the whole thing. Which is not about going to heaven, it's about being conformed to the image of Christ and this life that we live, right? It's just the Christian life and there's just so much more uh, to the Christian life than just not going to hell. Spurgeon said this, nothing can make a Christian more holy than the thought he's chosen. Shall I sin, he says, after God hath chosen me? Shall I transgress after such love? Shall I go astray after such loving kindness and tender mercy? Nay, my God, since thou hast chosen me, I will love thee, I will live to thee, I will give myself to thee to be thine forever, solemnly consecrating myself to your service. That's how understanding the doctrine of election should impact you, should affect you, should, should make you passionate for holiness not encouraging you to sin. And then number four, another effect here, and this is maybe the one that might shock you the most, um, the one that seems um, most um, opposite of what you would assume, but the doctrine of election, when understood um, rightly and applied rightly, it motivates us to witness. It motivates us to witness. Instead of removing our incentive to evangelize the lost, like most people assume, right? Some have wrongly concluded that a strong belief in the doctrine of election not only undermines the plausibility of evangelism, but also eliminates the necessity of evangelism. In other words, how can I tell someone they need to be saved if they may not be one of the elect? How is that possible? So you know, it brings into question the plausibility of evangelism. Why even do it? And again, Spurgeon, in, 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 in just the, the balanced way, I mentioned this last week, I love this, this, this quote where somebody said, Spurgeon, if you believe so strongly in the doctrine of election that only the elect can be saved, then why don't you just preach to the elect? He said, well, that'd be fine if you just walk around and pull everybody's shirt up and show me the big E on their back, and I'll do that. His point was, I don't know who is elect and who's not, but I know there are some out there that are. And so I preach knowing that God's going to take care of that. Some would say this, well, if God has chosen people for salvation, then they're going to be saved whether I witness to them or not. They're going to be saved whether I witness to them or not. So there's, there's, is, is evangelism really necessary? Well, I agree that if election is misunderstood or misapplied, it can result in apathy and it can result in fear. Let me give you an example because... We're talking about evangelism here, right? Evangelizing the lost. And, and, and I, just, I just need to say this because it's fresh in my mind um, that 
that someone shared with me that they had heard, they had a conversation with somebody and, and basically the comment was, uh, this was a mother who was having a difficult time with one of their kids and they simply responded, well, I guess I just have to come to grips with the fact that my child may not be one of God's elect. I'm just going to say it. That is a misunderstanding and a misapplication of the doctrine of election. I have never once, by the grace of God, wondered whether or not my kids are elect. It's irrelevant. It's none of our business, right? What is our focus? Our focus as parents are to be, is to be pleasing to the Lord, right? And to preach the gospel, model the gospel, right? Challenge our kids to, to follow Christ and lead the results to him. And, and, and ultimately, you can't save your kid. And, 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 and you're, it, it, that's between them and the Lord, and I just think, I'm just saying, I, I was joking about engineers earlier, right? And hopefully you guys took that with a grain of salt. Can I joke with moms? I know moms are more sensitive, but I'm just telling you, okay, in the years that I've, that I've, that I've been in ministry and, and this subject has come up in conversations or just interactions or even from a sermon or something, it's, it typically is the moms that have the biggest time getting over this. They can't get past it because their minds immediately take the doctrine of election to its logical conclusion to their kids. Like, well, what about my kids? What about little Johnny? What about Susie? What if, what if they're not one of God's love? And, and, and it freaks a mom's heart out. And I'm just saying, moms, don't go there. That's a place where God never wanted you to go with the doctrine of election and to make you apathetic and almost fatalistic with your kids. Well, if they're not one of God's love, there's nothing I can do. Or to live in fear of, oh, no, what if they're not? Forget about it. You do what God has called you to do. Be the parent God's called you to be and trust God. Trust God. Listen, I've met people that, that can clearly articulate the doctrine of election better than anyone. But they seem to have no passion for the lost. Or, or, or maybe this, they're so afraid that they might say something or do something that would appeal to man's will or emotions that they, they don't do anything to reach out to them. Again, that's that hyper-Calvinistic uh, position, and, and, and listen, I've been, I've been confronted on occasion um, after a sermon on Sunday morning. I've had uh, people from time to time come up to me and pull me aside and say, hey, you really sounded like an Arminian this morning. And they were concerned. They were like, you really sound like an Arminian this morning. I thought you, I'm like, I do believe in God's sovereignty and salvation. But I also believe in man's responsibility to repent and believe and to choose Christ. And so I heard somewhere, somebody said this, and I thought, I, I love the balance. They said, you need to preach like an Arminian and pray like a Calvinist. In other words, you need to preach hard that people will repent, people will believe, people will choose Christ, because that's what the Bible commands them to do. But then when you pray, Lord, Lord I, I just ask these people to do something that they cannot do. Would you grant them repentance and faith? You've heard me pray that many times, right? Why? Because there's a balance there of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. I think when properly understood and applied, the doctrine of election provides the ultimate motivation for us to witness to other people. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, I think two things need to be absolutely clear about the doctrine of election as it relates to evangelism. Number one is this. The doctrine of election is for believers, not unbelievers. It's not something you share as part of the gospel message. Point number two and a half. You know, you may or, not, may or may not be elect, so just want you to know that. 
But I'm going to share this with you anyway. Okay? But you may or not. This is not part of the gospel message. It's what I said last week. It's, it's the family secret of the children of God. Right? It's something you share with a person after they're saved. It's, it's not like, oh, by the way, just wanted you to know. right? But it is. It's like all, all they need to know is see, hey, whosoever will may come. That's the gospel. The universal call of the gospel, whosoever will may come, right? So they say, great, boom. They repent and believe. They walk through the doors and say, hey, by the way, check out the door. They turn around. Oh, it says chosen before the foundation of the earth. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. And they begin to study. And as they grow and mature in their walk with Christ, that begins to take shape for them. So the doctrine of election is for believers, not unbelievers, okay? So don't, don't, don't go there. Don't let your mind go there um, with, with someone you're trying to share the gospel with. Just keep, that, keep the election out of the whole thought process. Just tell them the gospel. Number two, God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. In other words, that, this applies to, to unbelievers' responsibility to repent and believe, right? They need to repent and believe as well as the believer's responsibility to preach the gospel to all nations. The same person who said, I, you didn't choose me, I chose you, i.e. Jesus, said, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So listen carefully. This is, this is a, hopefully a helpful statement here, okay, to bring this together when it comes to evangelism. Yes, God chooses those who will be saved, but he also has chosen the means by which they will be saved. God ordains who will be saved, but he has also ordained the means that they'll be saved, and that is by hearing and responding to the gospel. Romans chapter 10, we love verse 13, the universal call of the gospel. It says, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen to the very next verse. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news or good news of good things. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Listen, a person, a person that has been chosen by God for salvation, right, in eternity past, how is that going to flesh itself out in time? How is that going to come to fruition in time? It's going to happen when somebody like you or me goes up to them and presents the gospel to them. And they hear the gospel and they respond in repentance and faith. How cool is that? That, yeah, God is sovereign over salvation, but he's included us in that process. This process we don't even begin to understand, right? We get to be a part of this. And somehow God's sovereignty in ordaining those who will be saved fits together with our responsibility to preach the gospel. And, and, and God and his sovereignty marries those things together. And the fact that we know that God has chosen people to be saved from every tribe, tongue, and nation should motivate us to use every resource available to us to share the gospel in every possible way with every possible person with the confidence that some will be saved. 
Listen, if we just kept saying, hey, get out there and, 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 and tell people about Jesus, and you come back and go, well, pastor, they're mean to us. And they don't want to hear what we have to say. And, 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 and you know, they're rejecting it. That could be discouraging. But guess what? We know that there are some out there that won't reject it. And so that keeps us going, right? You get the door slammed in your face, right? What, what, what keeps you going is the fact that you know there's somebody out there. And so all we have to do is preach the gospel, leave the results to God. We're just throwing seed. We're just watering, right? We're going to bed like the farmer in Mark chapter 4. He wakes up, and all of a sudden there's a harvest. He goes, wow, that happened. Because God does it. He gets all the glory. He just includes us in the process. And listen, this is so liberating when you realize that the results are not determined by the creativity of your methods or the eloquence of your message. How many times have you walked away from a conversation with an unbeliever and thought, oh, if I'd only thought of that, if I'd only said that. I mean, I lived so much of my early Christian life as a high school student and college student, just always getting into arguments and debates with people, wanting to lead them to Christ, and I would always walk away thinking, oh, man, I blew it. You're thinking it was up to me and my ability to reason and argue with them and logic and, 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 and well, listen, it was, it was not about me. God determines whether or not a person gets saved. Listen, you could be the most eloquent apologist on the planet, right? It's not you that's going to convince that person to get saved. It's the Spirit of God, right, using the Word of God. All we have to be concerned about is that our presentation of the gospel is clear and it's accurate. And listen, that takes all the pressure off. You're not, the, you're not the salesman out there trying to seal the deal. Oh, they didn't sign. Oh, I blew it. I messed up. Must have done something wrong. No, you're, it's not about you sealing the deal. It's about you presenting the offer. And let God deal with them sealing the deal. I'll never forget one of the most challenging funeral services that I ever had to preside over. And uh, I was sitting back in the little room that they provide for you at a funeral home. You, you would know this because um, you're not a pastor, right? But they have this little room for pastors. And, and so you go there and you meet the director and he kind of shows you everything. And he says, okay, let me take you back to your room. <laughs> and so we got this little room we, we sit in. And it's kind of like a jail cell. It's like really small and, and, and no windows usually. And, but it's got a desk and it's got a notepad and it's a place for you to be quiet and to pray and to look over your notes or whatever you need to do. And I'll never forget, this was uh, years ago, I was sitting in that room and I was overwhelmed with the magnitude of this particular service because the person that had died was not a believer and that's always a challenge is what do you say? You know, well, we know where they went. You know, you don't say that, right, at a funeral. You got to figure out a way to speak the truth and love to people and not be abrasive with the gospel. So I'm like overwhelmed. I knew that the majority of people in there were going to be unbelievers as well. And, and it was true. I'll never forget this funeral because, I mean, I could actually feel the hostility as I was up there sharing the gospel. And, and it, was like, it wasn't like you had a lot of people, you know, they were like, you know, almost like they're gritting their teeth, like, why would you wreck this funeral for my friend by saying this? You know, it was like, whoa. So anyway, I was in the back room before all this happened, and I just was overwhelmed by the magnitude of this, and I thought, Lord, who is adequate for these things? And, 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 and then I just was overwhelmed 
with the thought of God's sovereignty in salvation. That, Lord, you've already ordained what's happening out there in these people's hearts. My only responsibility is to get up and not biff the word, right? I just need to just faithfully share the gospel, share the word of God, and the, the, whatever, however they respond, that's up to you. And I just remember just being just peace, just welling up in my mind and heart. Just real, I was, got so relaxed, right? Um, because I was just, I was, I was thinking about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Some of you may remember reading the, the book by Donald Whitney, Disciplines of the Christian Life. We, we encourage you to read it this summer along with our Holy Habits series. And in his chapter on evangelism, he says this. He says, sharing the gospel is like walking around in a thunderstorm and handing out lightning rods. You don't know when the lightning is going to strike or who it will strike, but you know what it's going to strike, the lightning rod of the gospel. And that's all we're doing. We're just walking around, passing out lightning rods, right? Saying, watch out, <laughs> watch out. Thunderstorm, right? And you don't know where and when and who it's going to hit, but you know what it will hit, and it will hit the gospel. So what, what do we share when we tell, tell people the gospel? John Piper written a helpful little article called Ten Effects of Believing in the Five Points of Calvinism. He said this, these truths remind me that evangelism is absolutely essential for people to come to Christ and be saved and that there is great hope for success in leading people to faith, but that conversion is not finally dependent on me or limited by the hardness of the unbeliever. So it gives hope to evangelism, especially in the hard places and among the hard peoples, it is God's work. Throw yourself into it with abandon. Love that. Lastly, number five, the doctrine of election stimulates us to praise. It stimulates us to praise instead of creating a bunch of analytical, let's stand around and turn our Bibles and study you know, more doctrine. And, you know, it's, it's, it, instead of being that kind of people, right, that it stimulates us to praise. I read this last week, but I'll read it again. Some think that election is all right for the theological classroom, but that it has no place at all in the pulpit. Such an attitude is unbiblical and is based on a lack of knowledge of what the Bible says about election. For election, instead of being a horrible doctrine, when understood biblically, it's perhaps the finest, warmest, most joyous teaching in all the Bible. It will cause the Christian to praise and thank God for his goodness in saving him a good-for-nothing, hell-deserving sinner. Listen, that's exactly how God's sovereign grace affected the Apostle Paul. Here's the man who had been the premier persecutor of the church, and now he's the premier apostle of the church. And he couldn't get over the fact that God had graciously chosen him before the foundations of the world to serve him, of all people, the greatest sinner who ever lived. And so here he is writing this letter to the Ephesians and his heart is just filled with wonder and gratitude to God for his salvation and he's just gushing with worship and praise to the Lord. And again, this is just one unbroken outburst of praise. And we need to remember that Paul was not writing an article for some theological journal here. He wasn't lecturing in some seminary class. He wasn't involved in some intellectual debate with an Arminian, okay? He was on his knees, pen in hand, lifted toward heaven maybe even, as he was lost in wonder and worship of God. And listen, when the reality of God's sovereignty in your salvation grips you like it did Paul, it will release you to worship like you've never worshiped before. I'm telling you, that's, that's my experience. I told you about sitting in seminary class, the, 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 the soteriology, hermardiology, 
We're learning all about these doctrines, right? I got my big old notebook out. I'm taking notes, you know, and I'm writing everything down the guy's doing. And, and, and all of a sudden he starts reading verse after verse after verse about the, the doctrine of election. And I, I, I just put my pen down and I was just overwhelmed with, with God's amazing love and grace and mercy. My eyes started to weep. And I remember walking away from that class saying, God, forgive me for taking these precious doctrines from your word and simply writing them down in a notebook and putting them on a shelf somewhere. Lord, cause these things to sink deep down into my heart and change the way I live, change the way I think. And that's my prayer for us as a church, that that, that uh, we would not be that church that just sits around discussing doctrine and priding ourselves that we're, we're more doctrinally correct than that other church, you know. I don't want to be that church. We need to realize that none of this stuff matters if it doesn't change the way we live our lives. We should be the most humble, the most gracious, right? The most bold, the most passionate, the most devoted to Christ of anybody. Because when you study doctrine correctly, it should lead to greater devotion, greater devotion to the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way. He said, the goal of theology is the worship of God. The posture of theology is on one's knees. I mean, how can you hear these truths and not just fall on your face before God and say, thank you. You are so amazing. I love you. I want to worship you. I want to serve you the rest of my life. And so the whole goal of, of, of talking about the doctrine of election is, is, is that we would be more humble, more confident, more holy, more faithful, more thankful, and more worshipful. Are you? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for you loving us and choosing us before time began, and I pray that that thought while it's truly incomprehensible to our human minds, we ask that you would use it to humble us, to give us greater confidence in our relationship with you, Lord, that it would motivate us to be more holy, Lord, it would also just energize us to, to, to witness and to evangelize, knowing that you have your chosen ones out there, that, 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 that we have the privilege and the joy of being part of this process where they hear the gospel. And Lord, that, that we would just live as, as just humble worshipers, that we would just live in awe of you, just, just uh, always thanking you and praising you for your goodness and your mercy in our lives. No matter what we're going through, Lord, we can truly say that we are better than we deserve. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.